1: Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. This week...
2: We have a period of rising taxes and squeezed expenditure. As we move towards an election, he will start cutting taxes.
1: Adrian Wooldridge on newly minted British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's plans to stabilise UK markets and the economy. I
2: will deliver on its promise that embraces the opportunities of Brexit, where businesses invest, innovate... And create jobs.
1: We'll also speak with Alexis Leondis on state shopping, for tax purposes, that is. First, though, to the sentiment shift in China markets this week. Stocks dived Monday, the UN weakened, and foreign investors dumped everything, such that rebounds on subsequent days paled in comparison with Monday's moves. I spoke with Bloomberg Opinion's Shuli Ren. So, Shuli, what changed exactly post party Congress? We didn't get a reversal of COVID zero, but by last week we weren't really expecting that anyway.
3: Global markets have been questioning China's so-called investability since late last year when Beijing's regulatory crackdowns on big tech and real estate companies wiped trillions of dollars off of investors' books. But this time, they are really worried because it does seem like President Xi Jinping is solidifying his power and packing the future Chinese leadership with all his longtime aides. And they're worried that Xi's so-called new economic development model is just not good for financial markets.
1: In the last few months, we've seen investors look at various parts of the China market very differently. So each time there was a crackdown on internet gaming, for example, or on education stocks, they sold off, but the rest of the market held up. That's not happening this time around. The whole market is selling off as one. Is that warranted or should investors be taking a pick and choose approach here?
3: I think it's interesting. It's really a verdict on the entire Chinese political landscape,
1: right? Mm,
3: It's no longer (laughs) sector specific. So so yeah, I think the market has spoken.
1: Chinese companies traded in the US are now trading at under six times forward earnings. So somebody and many people are valuing these companies really cheaply. Are these valuations unfounded right now?
3: That's the thing. Chinese companies are cheap, but do you want to buy into... Sometimes, you know, things are cheap for a good reason, right? Like, do you want to buy into cheap goods? Do they have good shelf life? That's the big question right now.
1: So you're talking about Baidu.com, Pinduoduo, JD.com. I mean, it's not just one type of company. These are across the board.
3: Yes. Actually, they tend to be consumer tech companies, e-commerce, social media. And the problem is that these companies, they are no longer favored by Beijing. Beijing these days, they want to develop so-called industrial tech in aerospace, EV supply chain, or like chip manufacturing, quantum computing. And all these companies that are in consumer tech, they're just not in it. And also, Xi Jinping likes to talk about this slogan of common prosperity, basically to broaden the middle class and narrow the wealth gap. But global investors associate the phrase common prosperity with wealth destruction because the phrase was coming out late last year during the crackdowns. So they get scared when this phrase gets mentioned again at the party congress.
1: You mentioned a moment ago that she has solidified his power and he has also packed the standing committee with allies. I don't want to make too much of a comparison, but one of the things Adrian Wooldridge mentioned when talking about the UK is that markets will like Rishi Sunak because he's no nonsense and he'll run number 10 and his chancellor will run number 11 very well. Obviously not to make a direct comparison, but you do mention in a recent piece that financial markets tend to prefer a focused administrative team to infighting and competing objectives among politicians. Surely the that's a positive and not a negative in some ways.
3: Yeah, interestingly enough, uh, financial markets don't mind dictators. <laughs> <laughs> they think it's good to have a focused administrative team. And actually, they liked it in 2012 when she first came into power, and 2017 when he flexed his muscles to solidify his power. But this time around, they're worried that his vision is wrong. So they're worried that his long-time aides are just going to drive China's economy and the financial markets to the ground.
1: What's the basis for that? Because yes, narrowing the wealth gap and the role of the state in the economy is paramount to Xi, but that doesn't have to spell financial market trouble, does it?
3: Well, the problem with the financial markets these days is that they are packed with companies that are not in Xi's policy priorities. Uh, Mm -hmm. For instance, Alibaba, Pinduoduo. So these stocks, which used to be well loved by global investors because they were a play directly to China's rising middle class. These stocks are getting dumped. And another problem is that after the party reshuffled, basically the economic team is being hollowed out. We know that China will have a new central bank governor, a new banking regulator and a new finance minister. We don't know who is going to run the national team. Mm. So that is not reassuring to financial markets.
1: Will she have been surprised by the market reaction enough to cause them to do something to come or support markets in some way?
3: I think she doesn't care about how much money investors have lost. I don't think he cares. I mean, he doesn't care about optics, right? And if he did, he will pack the political with just one woman. Right now, there is zero. Or like help Hu Jintao, his predecessor, to leave the Congress in a nicer way. But like, he doesn't seem to care about the optics. But I think at some point he will care because China still needs the financial markets to be open to finance this fiscal deficit and to raise funds for companies such as EV and chip manufacturing.
1: Which he will need in order to support young people coming into the labour market as well. Surely, for those who hadn't seen it or hadn't noticed, just explain the Hu Jintao episode that happened at the Party Congress. It was extraordinarily surprising and we'll never fully know what happened, as Clara Ferreira Marquez says in Bloomberg Opinion. But will you explain to us what happened?
3: It seems like Hu Jintao, he didn't look very well. He looked quite frail. And somehow two men were trying to escort him out of the big hall. And one of the politicians, Li Shu, he used to be President Xi Jinping's chief of staff. He's retiring. He tried to stand up and aid Hu Jintao. And Xi Jinping's strategist, Wang Huning, basically patted Li Shu and said, stand down. It's none of your business. Just don't get involved. And then Xi Jinping got escorted out. And Xi Jinping just looked down, didn't say a thing. And on his way out, Hu Jintao patted Li Keqiang's shoulder. And Li Keqiang looked like he almost recoiled. So it was a very, very strange scene. And I guess my take is that it's just a real glimpse into China's top political circle, how rigid and nervous all the politicians are.
1: Now we learned that before we got this equities and yuan slump, the foreign exchange regulator and the PBOC vowed to maintain the healthy development of the country's stock and bond markets and keep the yuan stable. Obviously, they weren't expecting this kind of reaction just you know a day or two later. What can they do in order to stabilize stock bond markets and the yuan?
3: Well, that's a very good question, because if you read the PBOC statement that the, the pledge to stabilize the markets is not at the front and center of that statement. It's like way in the back. And then like the front and center is all about studying President Xi's thought, uh, following the party's leave. And I just feel like there's so much power vacuum and uncertainty that bureaucrats are not doing anything right now. They're not going to do anything for a while.
1: It's really quite phenomenal. Suddenly, the market thinks that China is completely opaque, and seemingly a few months ago, it seemed to think it was transparent. Okay, so let's move on to what Xi does have in terms of economic priorities. He has a new development model, and you go into this in your column. First of all, tell us what you think common prosperity will turn out to be.
3: So she actually wrote about what common prosperity is and is not. Late last year, he basically said that it's not egalitarianism. And then, you know, he wants the whole economic pie to be bigger and everyone to be richer. But he did warn against exorbitant wealth that's collected by a few people at the top. So what the market sees is that She will at one point launch a major wealth redistribution, perhaps taxing the very rich at a much higher rate than before. And they feel that common prosperity is just a nicer name for wealth redistribution.
1: You have some suggestions for what Xi Jinping could do in order to make China quote unquote investable again. This has been such a watchword over the last year in terms of Wall Street notes and so on. But at the moment, I guess the market thinks China is uninvestable. What are your suggestions?
3: I think optics matter. President Xi Jinping needs to show what common prosperity is not. So one thing that he could do is to invite those tech billionaires, such as uh, Alibaba's Jack Ma, Tencent's Hongmi Ma, and Tuan's Wang Xing to Beijing, not to summon them, but to invite them to a tech conference to talk about how the private sector can help push China's tech frontier, just to show to the world that China is not against entrepreneurship or self-made billionaires. That's one thing. And another thing is that I think global investors are worried that China is closing itself to the world mm. because President Xi Jinping, he has another economic slogan called dual circulation. Basically, he wants to boost China's domestic economy and export goods and services that are of higher value add, such as EV supply chain. And along with three years of COVID zero and the closed borders, people rightfully think that China is closing itself to the world and it's going back to Qing dynasty. So one thing that Beijing could do is to reopen the border as soon as possible, lower the number of quarantine days for foreign travelers so that foreign businessmen can come to China to see for themselves what China is like, and overseas Chinese to come home to visit their families. I mean, it has been three years. So these are the optics and gestures he can make to stabilize the market.
1: And they would be pretty cheap gestures in many ways. So the other thing is, COVID-0 is going to get reversed at some point. Wall Street is talking about March of next year. It's not that far away. I mean, investors could possibly hang on until March. If COVID-0 was suddenly reversed, would that make a huge difference? I think if
3: COVID-0 was suddenly reversed earlier than next March, it would make a huge difference, right? Mm. Because uh, investors are still trying to figure out whether they should stick around or just sell everything. But next March is still quite a few months away, and COVID-0 is very, very expensive. According to Morgan Stanley estimates, COVID-0 costs the Chinese government 2 trillion yuan this year alone. Mm. And how that's going to... sustainable. It's a big question mark and it's going to create a huge drag on China's fiscal deficit.
1: Right. Now, we also had, of course, the delay of some economic data. Speaking of economic data this week, and GDP then finally came out and it was actually better than forecast. It was you know, anemic enough in China terms at 3.9%. But we don't have the full year's GDP figures yet. Even that wasn't enough to cheer the market. What does the market want to see in terms of China growth?
3: See, that's the interesting thing, that the uh, rosier economic data is just not going to cheer the markets, right? Like mm-hmm. and the GDP data is better than expected, but investors still brush that away. Housing numbers is starting to tick up a little bit. They still brush that away as well. And I think they're just more worried about optics. You know, that uh, Xi Jinping is going to do wealth destruction and that he's going to close China to the rest of the world. And possibly he's even going to invade Taiwan. They're just worried about those big picture topics.
1: Yes, the Taiwan question is definitely on investors' minds. And if that were to happen, I guess investors would completely flee China, right?
3: Yes, correct. So right now, they are trying to figure out what to do because China is cheap. And if there's a rebound, it could be a very, very big one, right? But uh, on the other hand, if uh, Taiwan conflict flares up, a lot of investors, they will have no choice but to sell. And we have seen that with Russia.
1: Exactly. And as you say, China may not want to close itself off, but some of that is not China's choice at this point. Obviously, we are seeing a lot of export controls from the United States and so on that's also having an impact on China's choices.
3: Yes, absolutely. That actually ends the investing China story as well.
1: Is there anybody on the Standing Committee that we should be aware of?
3: I think Li Qiang is interesting. He's already number two of the Standing Committee. He used to be Xi Jinping's chief of staff when she was Party Secretary at Zhejiang Province. He is currently Shanghai's Party Secretary, and he's going to be the future Premier. Another person that I think global investors don't look at enough is Wang Ying. He is basically the Steve Bannon of China. He, mm. he is basically President Xi's strategist and he is very left-leaning. It's interesting to see what he's saying in public because he appears to influence Xi's thought quite a bit.
1: Give us a rundown of what we know about how he thinks. Well, he basically did not like United States of America. <laughs>
3: mm. And uh, he is very eloquent. He was on debate teams as early as 1990s. And actually, he was very, very talented, but uh, he's very, very left-leaning. And he thinks the U.S. democracy is not working at all and that the U.S. is in decline.
1: And what will it mean for China domestic policies? It's- uh, it's interesting because
3: uh, now she is talking about like uh, China offering an alternative path to modernization. Perhaps she was being influenced by Wang Ying's thinking that the U.S. is in inevitable decline and China has a path towards being the top global economy. So that perhaps gives Xi Jinping a lot of confidence.
1: Shuli Ren there. Don't forget, we're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or your favourite podcast platform. And do get in touch. We love to hear from you. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. People moved states mid and post-pandemic for lots of reasons. But one reason people consider moving, even in non-pandemic times, is obviously state income tax. But what evidence do we have that people move to, say, Florida or Texas primarily because those states don't tax at the state level? Well, Bloomberg Opinions' Alexis Leondas has been looking at some data we do have to figure it all out. So, Alexis, we all notice when a hedge fund or a big investment firm moves. Alliance Bernstein, for example, moving to Nashville back in 2018, which had obviously nothing to do with the pandemic. It was pre-pandemic. Citadel announced this summer it's moving its HQ to Miami from Chicago, which was a big deal. But what about individuals?
4: Right. It feels like you can always find research supporting one side or the other. There was a recent report from the Tax Foundation that actually did provide some pretty compelling evidence that not only do just wealthy people move for tax reasons, because they are the evidence, seems to be a bit clearer. If you really pay a lot in taxes, then perhaps you are much more conscious of where you're living, and especially Mm -hmm. if you're retiring. But across the board, we are seeing that taxes, especially as of late, are driving people's decisions to relocate.
1: What are the states that are accepting incoming at residence,
4: the most popular states right now seem to be Florida, Texas, and Arizona. And that's true at all income levels. And I should say that the tax foundation data is based on IRS data. Mm. So this is some of the most comprehensive data we're seeing. This covers you know, hundreds of millions of taxpayers, their returns, and it also includes their adjusted gross income.
1: The tax foundation we know is right-leaning, I guess it's fair to say. Yeah. But this data
4: speaks for itself. Right. And they looked at three different factors when they were trying to figure out, is there a correlation? And the first thing they looked at is their top marginal tax rate. They're also looking at the structure of the tax code in that state. Is it considered you know, very complex and difficult, or is it more straightforward? And then they're also looking at the state and local tax collections per capita. What is the state's total tax coffer? The income tax they're collecting, the property tax they're collecting, right. the sales tax that they're collecting divided by the population. So across all three of those boxes, it seems as though the states that score well in terms of being low tax, having good tax structures, have low state and local tax collections per capita, those are the ones that seem to be attracting the most taxpayers. Aside from the tax foundation data, I looked at some of these other ways that other groups kind of assess the overall tax picture for each individual state. And when you look at a state like Texas, and I actually had a reader email me after reading my column to say that she had moved from New Jersey to Texas partially because of taxes. Texas obviously has no income tax. New Jersey has one of the higher rates in the nation. And she said, but with property taxes, she's really feeling as so it's not just like a win-win on the tax front. Right. Exactly. So you may not accrue all of the savings that you think you might accrue just
1: because you're not paying the state tax.
4: Right. And look at a place like Florida, where, unfortunately, after Hurricane Ian, now homeowners down there, especially if they move from New York, thinking they would save on taxes. But maybe they're paying more on things like insurance or you know damages now from this hurricane. So it's, it's really something to think about and not just be motivated by the tax picture.
1: Now, have we seen states try to change their rate of income tax in a hurry post-pandemic?
4: We actually are seeing lots of states do things, and most of them are cutting their income tax rates. They're either moving to perhaps just a flat tax. They're cutting their rates. 12 or 13 states have moved in the last year or two to change their rates. And it'll be very interesting again to see, for the states that don't make any kind of moves, will they see more people leaving? And for the states that do cut their rates, will they see more people coming there? And some of the tax foundation data also looked at, just because you have taxpayers leave, that doesn't always mean that the adjusted gross income goes up or down. Exactly. And I'm
1: sure it's not always the case that states want an influx of people. They want an influx of rich people.
4: Exactly right. And some of the Midwestern states, they saw that in the data that we were looking at showing basically that while more taxpayers moved there, their AGI didn't necessarily go up because probably what was happening if those people were coming from high tax states, they were being paid more. When they moved to the Midwestern state, they may have been paid less, and as a result, the AGI overall went down.
1: And it's really corporations that they want to attract more so than probably individual residents, although I guess if you go to micro level, municipalities may want to attract residents or what have you. Well, I can understand that it might be easier for people to move to the next door state, right? So contiguous states can maybe buy with each other for different people. What are you noticing in terms of individual states and
4: outliers? South Carolina is a really good example. So that was the state that was number five for attracting wealthy taxpayers, and I believe taxpayers overall. But it still imposes a graduated individual income tax rate that tops out at 7%, which is relatively high. And on the flip side, Virginia lost a lot of high earners, but it has a relatively middle-of-the-road, run of the mill top marginal rate of five point seven five percent. There are always going to be states for which, you know, the weather is, you know, a bigger (laughs) attraction or there are other things that are driving people to move there. I mean, so many times obviously with moving, it's based on a personal decision. I
1: wonder what it could be for Miami. I guess we won't know until we see more of these studies come out. But, you know, you have to wonder, do people move and then sort of reverse their decision? It's not easy to move, especially if you have a family. So it's obviously a major decision. But I guess you can undo it if you want to as well. And
4: I'm sure that happens. It's such a great point. So because there was an extension for taxpayers to file their return in the midst of the pandemic, you didn't have to file in April of 2020. You had until July. (laughs) So you're seeing that these addresses capture some of the moves that happened early on in the pandemic up until July of 2020. But obviously, so many people didn't move right away. So I think it will be really interesting to see what the IRS status shows in the coming years.
1: Bloomberg Opinions, Alexis Leondos. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to
0: 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising
1: regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. UK markets stabilized this week after Rishi Sunak moved into Number 10 Downing Street and appointed a cabinet. I will place economic stability and confidence... At the heart of this government's agenda,
2: this will mean difficult decisions to come.
1: I spoke with Bloomberg Opinion's Adrian Wooldridge on what to expect. So Adrian, the FT's opinion page is questioning Sunak's competence, and I wonder what you think about that. He was Chancellor under Boris Johnson and maybe embraced policies he didn't particularly believe in. Does he do a U-turn now and go back to things like small-state policies, for example?
2: I think that the question is, competence is very questionable. I think he's been extremely competent in every single job that he's done. And even when he was working for Boris, he may have overspent a little bit and he may have undertaxed a little bit, actually. I mean, there is a problem with the balancing of the books. But that's more because Boris was edging him in or pushing him in that direction. And he ultimately resigned from his job Precisely because he disagreed with Boris on questions of spending. So I think he's a competent person and he has a very competent person next door in number 11 as his chancellor in the form of Jeremy Hunt. So I think my presumption would be competent rather than incompetent.
1: Well, are we looking at austerity for Britain now, though, as a way of getting inflation under control?
2: I think we're moving towards a position of um, austerity, not out of choice, but out of necessity, partly because we have to get inflation under control and partly because we have this, you know, enormous black hole at the heart of the economy, which we need to deal with. So we will have a period of rising taxes and uh, squeezed expenditure which will produce a bit of austerity. But this is not elective austerity in the way that we had under David Cameron and Osborne when we could have had a more expansionary policy. I think it's absolutely necessary austerity because without it, we will lose the confidence of the markets. You know, To restore the confidence of the markets, we have to try very hard to live within our means. <laughs>
1: Well, exactly. Now, so far, guilt yields are back at pre-mini-budget levels. The pound is around yep. one fifteen. Is all calm or is the market just waiting to see what he unveils?
2: I think the presumption is that the market will be pretty calm. I think they have a lot of confidence in Sunak, Jeremy Hunt. And beneath that, I think they'll tend to be confident rather than lacking in confidence in the British economy. It took a lot to shake the markets you know, in the British economy. We had Boris with his very chaotic leadership and people, the markets basically accepted that. Then we had, you know, this extraordinary event with Liz Truss and quasi-quadding kamikaze budgets, and that did shake the markets. But I think they will be happy with this mixture. And it's not just the matter that he's pursuing broadly sensible economic policy when it comes to taxing and spending, but he has a very calm, sensible, well-organized manner. Downing Street has not been, you know, the heart of British government has not been well run Mm. for a very long time. And, you know, you now have somebody who, for to go on his record in the Treasury, runs things very well. You know, there won't be partying in in Downing Street as there was in the past. You know, he's he's a a teetotaler. It'll be a very sober atmosphere.
1: Sinek was a Leave proponent. He's actually the first real believer, given that Truss was a latecomer and and Johnson even too. What will his pro-growth policies be?
2: I think at the moment we won't be thinking about pro-growth policies. At the moment, the most important thing to do is to stabilise the economy, reassure the markets, because without a stable economy, without stability, without a reassured set of markets, you can't have any growth whatsoever. Actually, what's interesting about all of this is that in the long term, he is a person who believes in lower taxes. And the state as a smaller share of GDP, Mm -hmm. he mentioned the figure of about 37% of GDP as being about the right amount. His quarrel with this trust was not about where they wanted to go, whether growth was a good thing, whether shrinking the state was a necessary way of leading to higher growth in the long term. It was about timing. And it was about whether you can actually cut taxes and raise spending at exactly the same time. So I think as we move towards an election, he will start cutting taxes again, which is always what he wanted to do as Chancellor. The Chancellor, his argument with Boris, again, was about speed and pace and timing.
1: Narayana Kochalakota says, also in Bloomberg opinion, that markets didn't oust trust, the Bank of England did. And that's in a way the case, right? There was a standoff between Kwasi Kwarteng and Andrew Bailey. What will the relationship between Sunak and Bailey be? We haven't heard from Bailey yet.
2: Um, I tend to actually agree with that. I mean, I, I, I do think that this sudden financial event, sudden budget, which basically said let's spend more money on energy and cut the top rates of taxes and lots of other taxes, did suddenly send a shock. And it was the combination of the government saying, let's put in the foot on the accelerator and the Bank of England putting the foot on the brake. Mm. It was this stop me, start you sort of thing that really messed things up. I think that the relationship between the Treasury and the Bank of England will be good, I think, but... Sunak knows Bailey. He worked with him, you know, closely when he was at the Treasury. And he is a technocrat. He's a person who loves the language of economics, the language of macro financial management, you know, long-term economic policy. He loves talking about all of that, as Bailey does. So they're both professionals, they're both technocrats, and they're both not political showmen. So I think that we have re-established – I hate to sound so optimistic, but um, we have re-established, you know – Sensible people at the heart of a British government. We have, as he said, we have got lots of problems ahead. But I don't see the Bank of England and the Treasury moving in 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 different directions. There will be difficulties ahead. But there won't be chaos at the heart of government.
1: Well, in terms of who Sunak appointed and fired, it was a little bit of a purge. He got rid of anyone who wasn't a supporter all along and appointed or reappointed supporters. For example, Suella Braverman, now slightly off topic to markets. But how should we think about the fact that he reappointed someone accused of a security breach, which had caused her to resign?
2: Well, I you know I was very disappointed by the appointment of Braveman, partly because of the security breach, partly because I don't think she's a very distinguished or successful government figure. I don't think she's got a very good career. I think a lot of her rhetoric is is rather appalling. Also, you know, she's been making a huge amount of fuss uh, about Indians overstaying their mm. visas, which has enormously annoyed the Indian government because it seems that they she's, she's singling them, them out. And there's a time when Anglo-Indian relations, Sunak as the first Hindu prime minister, Indian yes. origin prime minister, it couldn't be better. It seemed unnecessary. So it wasn't as though she's such a towering talent or towering figure within the party that he had to appoint her. So, you know, I, I don't know what deal was, was con, c, c, concocted between the two of them. It may be the price that he had to pay for the right of the party, the Brexit right of the party being quiescence or acquiescing, yes. but it's, it's, it's not the best start. He's got rid of people who need to be got rid of, Mm. uh, either because they're weird uh, or because they're not all that good. Chloe Smith, I didn't think it was all that good. She's been got rid of, I think. Lee Smog was eccentric and toxifying. He's got rid of, I think all of that is good. It's not the perfect administration, but it's better than it was.
1: Well, to segue from there, Michael Gove, Secretary of State for levelling up housing and communities. I mean, which communities, Adrian?
2: Richard Sunak has a different, slightly different set of beliefs about levelling up from his predecessor. He thinks that, you know, the north of England is a sort of a nascent thatcherite country, that what it needs is not an enormous amount of money being spent on it, but a removal of some of the restrictions to economic growth. So he's always said that the north of England is coming to thatcherism a bit late but it's coming to Thatcherism. It was really people who would have voted for Mrs Thatcher in the 1980s who came to Thatcherism more recently because of a legacy of cultural dislike for the, mm. for the Conservative Party. So he, I think he won't be as much levelling up about spending. He'd be more levelling up about creating enterprise and encouraging enterprise and encouraging entrepreneurial classes in the north of England. But I think that that is a policy which levelling up as Boris Johnson conceived of it was a policy that required a lot of public spending and we just don't have that much um, public money to to spend at the moment.
1: Well, that's the other thing. He doesn't have a war chest. So for how long do you think, Adrian, is the UK now politically stable? Is just more than two years enough time for Sunak, assuming he stays, to engineer a popular Conservative Party again?
2: Um, There are two different questions there. Whether we have um, stability, um, I think that um, I think that we have a stable person in charge, whereas we, we've had unstable people in charge. We have somebody who has supporters right across the party, on the left and the right of the party, which we didn't have before. And we have somebody who was actually a Brexiteer. You know, he, 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 as you said, he supported Brexit uh, long before Liz Truss came round to, to the idea. So, I th- And we do have a, a general election coming up. So I think that, you know, he is, well positioned to stabilize the conservative party whether that's enough to get rid of the memories of the absolute absurdities of you know the tory party destroyed its reputation for economic competence it it, it looked like you know it was turning the country into a complete laughing stock um and you know it's been changing its leaders without having a general election so i think all of that i would presume that we'll have a labor party you know a labor government next time even if he can stabilize things
1: Yeah. I mean, the other question is who will emerge as the anti-Sunak Conservative leader in Parliament? I mean, will Boris Johnson or Liz Tross or any of the previous leaders play a significant role from here?
2: Uh, That's a very good question. But I think that people are really sick of these um, people, you know, um, grandstanding. (laughs) They've recognised that the country is in dire straits. It needs a period of stability. And a, a lot of Tory MPs. Realise that if you've got a rebellious faction and that rebellious faction shakes the government and tries to bring it down, it might mean that the party is completely wiped out in the next election. So even if it's just a case of limiting the losses of the Conservative Party in the next election, I think that's a powerful way in which MPs will be disciplined and will discipline each other. So I don't think anybody would be very popular if they decide to uh, cause yet more trouble over the next two years, Mm. although it must be said that the Conservative Party's appetite for (laughs) trouble has been quite extraordinary.
1: Bloomberg Opinion's Adrian Wooldridge there. That does it for this week's Opinion. Do get in touch, though. We love to hear your comments and opinions. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion.